Hi, and welcome to the Robin O'Sherwood podcast, where we talk about the classic 1980s TV series, Robin O'Sherwoods, which starred Michael Pride and Jason Connery. In this episode, we're going to talk about religion and how it relates to Robin O'Sherwood and how it's presented. So for this one, I'm joined by Karen and Steph. Hello. Hiya. So as I understand it, I've not read this uh, jest poem for many, many years. But one thing I always remember is that he was a quite a religious uh, guy in that and he was always talking about um, the Virgin Mary and saying we do this for our lady so how did he go from that into being like this pagan pagan icon how did this happen um yeah you're right from about the jest I, I again haven't read it for many years but um yeah I think Robin was almost quite well known for being almost obsessional about our lady and Virgin Mary I think that's that comes up quite a lot. So I don't think in any of the film adaptations or TV adaptations that I can think of, there is any religion coming from Robin before Robin is Sherwood. It's, it's like, there's like, you know, obviously you've got the, the earliest Jess where he's Virgin Mary, but then there's this period before Ross where he's of no religion at all. Yeah. I'd say. He's so either... Yeah, go on, sorry. Uh, when was the jest written? Um, kind of um, 14th, 15th century, something like that? Yeah, I think, I think 15th century. It might mm. be 14th um, so without looking it up, but it's, it's some time after the fact. So it's a really, it's a, a real product of its time, isn't it? And doesn't it set Robin Hood in the reign of Edward I, the yeah. jest? Yeah. So that's yeah, like high medieval when the cult of saints was really at its kind of, you know, most epic level, really. And saints of all sorts were really venerated and it showed your piety. And particularly the cult of the Virgin Mary was enormous. It was like the cult. So to have a, the jest written at that time set in that, that time it's a real reflection of the period isn't it and as we move on Robin becoming de-religionized for want of a better word is representative of the the times and the culture it's been set and even though Christianity was still very is still you know right through up till you know modern times was you know a very popular mass religion in in England it's there's something about the cult of saints fades away doesn't it and becomes a very it, yeah. because of the reformation it's a very Catholicized thing so the when you lose that after the reformation that's probably where it fades away from the the, the retelling of the legend yeah. I, I guess I what i recall of the jest i mean uh robin it, it stands out particularly for the our lady you aren't getting that from any of the other characters so whether it's an indication that he's your hero mm. he he's the good guy you know I, I i don't know but you like for example little john you're not getting he's he's i think he's quite happy going to church and all the rest but robin's sort of you know quoting you know sort of everything's our lady it's quite it's quite pronounced it's because it's chivalry isn't it it's like an echo of the chivalric code and serving a lady for honor and honor only with no you know it's it's all a kind of another version of that isn't it and that was so incredibly popular at the time you know edward the the you know the edwards and their 
veneration of like the knights around table and all that kind of thing and, and you know, the Virgin Mary. Mm, yeah I think it's a real and it just shows Robin's qualities mm. doesn't it it's like you say as a hero as a the good guy as somebody who's there to look up to because he, he does the right thing and is a pure and chivalric I would, yeah. I would I mean, say I, that's kind I of what tuning up. into just to pick up on what you were saying before about uh, Robin being a reflection of the times, if you put Robin of Sherwood where it was in the 80s, you've got you're in a period where sort of mainstream religions are losing their, mm. um, I guess, for want mm-hmm. of a better word, on, the, on a lot of the population. And you've also got the rise of, I think the correct term is New Age or Neo Pagans, I think think yeah um so you've got that coming to the fore you've also got a background in sort of tv and literature of the 70s going into the 80s where um a lot of children's authors particularly are doing things that would now be called folk horror got things Mm. like susan cooper's work for example Mm. you've got children of the stones um, you've got the Moon Stallion, you, you know, I, I, there's just hundreds and hundreds of, of like references that, that are all sort of seem to be going in this bottleneck towards Robin of Sherwood, which has which then yeah. sort of burst onto Saturday night television, basically with pagan religion at forefront, I guess. Mm. I, I can't think of another series that was doing that in such a prime time angle but but you've got uh robin is your hero again and he's he's gone well, well not full circle but he's almost like done a 180 degree turn hasn't he from from like the champion of christianity mm. and our lady he's gone mm. right round the other side and now he's a champion of paganism and following his father so he's gone from a yeah. female uh, a female deity, I guess, for want of a better word, because I think I think some people at that time were, were almost worshipping Mary almost as a goddess, really. Yes, they, yeah, they, they certainly were, Mary Whitehouse, her, <laughs> weren't they? <laughs> but too too like you've gone you've gone almost easy. It's almost the opposite, which is interesting because the goddess herself isn't in Robin Hood at all. It's funny, isn't it that? No. It, kind of pagan earth related religion isn't is reflected in a male form through Hearn and the ancient yeah. legends around Coronus and stuff yeah. rather than the female we're all, we're all about goddesses and yeah. you know the goddess of the land and stuff mm. Interesting. Interestingly, the the, uh, the goddess was in the audio version of Knights of the Apocalypse with Hearn oh. which was a really good addition and is as far as I know not in anything else <laughs> That's been done. No, I don't. I don't remember it at all. No, I don't but I remember my ears picked up, and I was like, "Whoa, this is." They get this. This is great. This is new. Yeah. Yeah, something new, and it, this is interesting. It would yeah. be such a massive change to the series, though, that you, you're going to have to do some sort of backstory or mm. or a storyline to to introduce that properly. I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the series is too well established, I think, after three series to bring in another deity. Yeah. You, mm. you know, it, it's hard enough in series three, isn't it, to connect Robert with her? And he's got a much, not a stronger relationship or a bond, or even though Herm obviously brings him in to save everybody, 
I don't feel it's as strong as the link Loxley and her mm. have. It's quite differently yeah. portrayed. So, but again, Robert would have been brought up as a Christian. Absolutely, yeah. Like, you know, yeah, I mean, you'd think so. Really, really at that time, um, um, that that it's set, um, and Steph will correct me on this if I've got it wrong. Um, everybody in the country would have been professing to be a Christian. Um, they Unless they would were Jewish. Have, mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they would have been attending church. They would have got in a lot of trouble if they weren't attending church, I believe. I think mm -hmm. that's also around the time when after church, the men or before church, the men had to go and practice archery. That's a bit later. That's Edward. That yeah, um, uh, you know, they, they might have carried on their superstitions and carried on uh, sort of myths and... Um, uh, I don't know, things like uh, traditions, traditions around the, the harvest, those kinds of things. They would have carried on, but they might have had either um, a, a Christian overlay or maybe just been downgraded in importance or, or tolerated by the local priest. But there wouldn't, to my knowledge, have been anyone in the country who is outright saying they're a pagan. You know, they might have had some, some, like I say, some traditions or some things they were doing, but they would have all said they were Christians. Absolutely. I mean, the, the church, the church was everybody's lives. You know, you went to church because often the church could be um, the lord of your manor. They could own the land you lived on. You could own the service as well as, you know, you had to pay tithes to the church. They're a big part of a pillar of society. Society is split into the three states, those who work, those who pray and those who fight. And you're, you're in one of those three and everybody goes, everybody, you know, any, mm. any archaeology, you know, any buildings from those periods, every, every castle's got chapels, multiple chapels sometimes. Every village has a church, every town has multiple religious christian whether they're other monasteries or hospitals or hospices or abbeys you know that's the architect that is the it's the part of the ruling state and everybody does doesn't mean you're necessarily personally massively religious but religion was a it probably was though it was a huge part of people's lives it was the way they they learned things the way they um heard news it was the way they learned how to bring up their children, their families, where you got your moral core from. It was kind of, it went through you like blood went through your veins and and being against it, people often didn't have enough learning to know what an alternative was. And when you're talking just about the um, traditions, and stuff, I mean, we still see those adopted today where I live and we live in the Midlands. You get well dressings, mm. which are now blessed by the church. And obviously that goes way back to, you know water being what you need to live and being venerated since the earliest times by humans and now you get you know church parades around the well dressing and then there's things about the beating of the bounds where parish boundaries are kind of hit with sticks which is the weirdest thing um once a year so all the kids in the village know where the edge of their parish is and nowadays those ceremonies start off at the chapel and you come back to chapel and sing some hymns at the end. But obviously years ago, it wasn't. It was a community thing. And the church adopted these community rituals to give the, give it credence. Christmas is, we all know Christmas is adopted from Yule. Easter's from the Ostra. It's, it's all those highlights. Midsummer becomes harvest, really. It, it, 
it's it's um in in the Roman Church kind of imposed itself in layers on top of the the Saxon Celtic pagan community, whatever you want to call it, to assert control because the church is an authority. It doesn't mean deep in your core, you as a person are always feeling every fibre as a religious person. You probably were in the period we're talking about. But um, this kind of the, the structure of the church and there's the faith inside the person as well, I think they're two different things. Yeah, and I, I think as well, the, the community angle, I mean, if all your friends are going to church and your parents are going to church and all your family's going to church, everybody you know is going to that church, you're going to go to the church. You, you know, you, and it, you, there's also the charity angle. If you're on hard times, the church is going to be the person or the what the, the structure that's going to make sure you 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 know you can at least stay in the church so you've got a roof over your head you know they, they're going to be getting food to you that kind of thing um i mean you can't sort of understate its importance really no, i think from, i think from, from this period right right through really and from a moral standpoint as well you know you, you these are communities that lived in the main in themselves some people traveled out to markets or went and got work in another town but we're talking about a pit time period in the early 1200s when there weren't very many towns and the towns were small so people lived in villages and they worked on the land and they married people from neighboring villages and word gets around and if the one place you all meet together every week is on a Sunday in church it becomes a big social thing and everyone's talking about who you walk into the church with do you walk in with your family or did you happen to walk in with a boy from a neighboring family I mean that would be like oh, you'd be cast out talk about you know Love Island being booted out of the villa that kind of thing this would be outrageous you know and did you pay attention? Did you fall asleep during the prayers? And the, and the priest had a lot of control and you could fine your family or you would be cast out. You know, it, it gets on my goat a bit when you read a, a, like historical fiction where there's some young girl who's really opposed to everything and she runs away and doesn't go to church or she takes off her wimple and she's dead radical. I think you've got to be incredibly brave when you've got no alternative to behave very differently. And I think most people would have gone to church all the church services they would have listened in a churches were brightly colored places then with stories painted on the walls it's how people learned and put themselves in a place in the world through the church that's it just was a huge part of their lives it's, it's something in robin assured that's almost quite odd that that aspect is just completely missing um you don't you don't ever see any of the characters going to church. Um, Even Hugo, the abbot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, Hugh, Hugo, you, he's in it as a job, which is, is fair enough. I mean, even in the uh, Piers Plowman, for example, they were talking about um, the church being corrupt and, and taking lots of money and, and, and it being that kind of job thing, which I, I guess Hugo is representing. Um, but you don't you don't really get that other side of just just people just quietly going to church on a Sunday. Mm. You know, well, I mean, where where do they go to church in Wickham? You know? Yeah, there isn't even a church, is there? No church. Where do they go? To where do they go? <laughs> it could be. I mean, one of the other village could villages could be the parish yeah. church, and they, they could, could be an outlying village. Village, couldn't they? I guess that we never mm. see that's got the 
church that all the Wickham eyes. Yeah. But they probably would have had that, you know. It, I mean, it is supposed to be a poor village, isn't it? And a poor village can't yeah. be a priest because they have to have land themselves and village. So a bit like villagers would perform service to um, the Lord of the Manor, they would do it for the priest as well. They would help the priest, you yeah, because it's service to the church that they owed. Yeah, that's yeah, not the only um, bit we do see is what people go on pilgrimage, and pilgrimage is referred to quite a lot in the in the program. Um, which I don't know, again, I don't know any other medieval set drama that ever references pilgrimage, unless I've missed something. It's something that I, you rarely, rarely come across. But uh, in Ross, they mention it quite a few times, either the sheriff's off on pilgrimage mm-hmm. or people are going to um, the abbey in the Cross of St. Syracuse. You know, they're, they're on their, um, you know, Guy's mother, Lady Margaret, she's going on a pilgrimage to hopefully ease her pain before she dies. You know, it, it's a feature in people's lives in that way, rather than kind of going and standing in the church and saying their prayers. I've obviously gone looking for the missing churches. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, should we talk a bit more about Robin now, Ross? As we okay. like to call it. <laughs> and how the characters represent different aspects and what's really funny is that you have um, the Robin Hood character as a kind of pagan icon who seems to represent the best aspects of Christianity whereas mm-hmm. you have the um, the bad guys the guys at the top represent the worst of Christianity and something I've just thought of actually which I've never considered before is Mogwin of Ravenscar based on Mary Whitehouse <laughs> Because she's like this pious woman who turns out to be a devil worshipper. <laughs> Possibly. He had, his running, he had his running with her after the Swords of Wayland, he did, though, didn't he? he? Yeah. 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 I wonder I, if he was I, deliberately trying her to troll her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Put it past Kit, but. Oh. I don't think so, in all honesty. It, it just struck me as funny. <laughs> So, I mean, what's, what's funny is that, as I said, you have this Robin Hood character who represents, like, seems to represent in a lot of ways Christ, right, down to being resurrected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the whole idea of, like, um, saying you can't, you shouldn't be, you should be helping the poor and kind of healing them and stuff versus these guys who... Are just like fake Christians. Is that where you go? He's not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. Yeah, pretty much. What's <laughs> <laughs> going there? <laughs> you, do you realise what you've done? You've ruined my punchline. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, that's fine. It wasn't a very good one, anyway. <laughs> As you said, Steph, in every Robin Hood version kind of reflects the time it was made in. I remember a lot of conflict around that time between like um, Christians and atheists or uh, New Age people. Mm. And what I mean, especially around Life of Brian, which I think was late 70s, early 80s. Mm. Yeah. Um, so that kind of accelerated this whole thing questioning the faith but ultimately yeah it represents like the um the government being corrupt this is the whole point of the robin hood story and the church kind of represents that 
Yeah, which you don't really find that much in Errol Flynn, as much (laughs) commentary. No. It's with the odd, like, fat abbot or something, or corrupt. I I don't know. I don't really know much about the Errol Flynns or anything like that, whether they've got any morally dubious um, church figures. It's more the sheriff and Gisborne, Mm. I think, in that one. But then again, it is is only one film. Mm -hmm. for. Yeah, and again, you've got to remember what time it was it was set in. Yeah. Where if you're criticizing the church, you're probably going to come in mm-hmm. for a lot of criticism yourself. Um, I mean, I do remember the hoo ha about Life of Brian. Uh, I also can remember later there was similar hoo ha about a very nice film which wasn't in any way uh, insulting to the church, which was called The Pope Must Die. Oh, um, I, can't, and I can't see anything wrong with the title. No, in America, they had to change it to The Pope Must Diet because <laughs> Robert Coltrane was playing the Pope and he was oh, on the yeah. larger side, which I actually found more insulting. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the reason it was called that, as far as I recall, was because he sort of became the Pope by accident and then people were trying to kill him. Mm. Um, but... Yeah, it was actually wasn't in any way critical of the church, really. But there was a there was a lot of hoo ha about it because I think of the title. I think you're right. There's a climate in the '80s where kind of criticism and was more open. Like if, like you say, in the 1950s, Christianity and the Church of England was very, very dominant. Whereas by by the '80s, you're starting to get the what what became known as the born again Christian movement started to grow a lot of the evangelical preaching from America was starting to have an influence and the Church of England's kind of control over the church here was starting to fracture a bit I think you know women priests were starting to be women um, clergy were starting to be ordained and there was a lot of questioning which kind of led to an atmosphere where people in you know the arts and drama and theatre stuff could pose more challenge I guess to, to the church so there was a bit more of an open you could put a kids tv program on where you portray the church as in a negative light whereas if you tried to do that in the 60s you, you wouldn't have happened at all wouldn't have flown at all but we had a bit more of a challenging climate all around in the 80s which gave rise to a bit more kind of difficult questions being posed I suppose yeah, yeah I mean it, it did sort of go too far the 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 way I think at one point because I, I remember I think it was in the 90s if there was any show like a murder mystery or any any program like that where it had a vicar or a priest or some member of the church in it they were always going to be the murderer basically as soon as it started <laughs> you were like that's the bad guy um and it, it just became a real trope at one point mm. and just boring to watch um so I'm quite glad they've they've reined that back in because it did it did get really samey and just boring really and mm-hmm. it was just lazy writing. But I'm sure that all the writers thought they were being incredibly daring and didn't realise that there were about 395 <laughs> <laughs> that had been on the week before. All right, so um, thinking about the characters in Robin of Sherwood and how they respond to religion, we really have to reconcile this problem of. Christianity and paganism that's represented through Friar Tuck and how he um, manages the two because he's right in the middle of this situation between Robin and his own um, beliefs. 
have we got any thoughts on that? How does he do this? Um, yeah, I think I think Chuck's a really, really interesting character because he's he's obviously Christianity is obviously extremely important to him. Even when he's in the forest, he is still wearing a friar's habit. So he's still openly professing that he is a friar. He's he, you know, it's not like he he's abandoned his role and gone native with the rest of the Murrays. Um, he is still a friar. You know, there's there's periodic scenes, I think, throughout the series where he'll occasionally be doing friarly duties. He but he's also and the interesting thing, I think, with him is that he doesn't show any conflict about internal conflict about the fact that he is essentially living in a forest with a bunch of pagans and a Muslim. This doesn't seem to bother him at all. Um, while I was looking up things for doing this podcast, I came across an interview with Phil which was done a few years ago. I believe it was a lady by the name of Mary McDonald, but I could be giving her name wrong. And if so, I apologise if she ever hears this. But I basically wrote down what Phil said. I've pa paraphrased a few things, but most of this is, is actually his own words. And this is what he was saying about Tuck and what his feelings are on religion. So this is Phil. For me in particular, the religious theme which ran through the series, the holy orders, godliness of the church and state combined, the ethics of morality, the pagan villages and outlaws, all kept it fascinating and enjoyable. It was the scenes where Tuck was persuaded to join the outlaws by the actions of Abbot Hugo and Simon de Belem that rounded Tuck off from a monk of godly behaviour to one who flew by the seat of his pants with the outlaws. He did not really see it as going from God to bad, but his morals and ethics kicked in and it was more about going from greed to good. He saw the outlaws and their ethics as much closer to God than the sheriff and his cronies. Tuck knows that whilst he can preach the word of God, there's little he can do when villagers adhere to Christianity, but hang on to culture, folklore, ceremony and superstitions. He wants to be in touch with people and be their Christian guide. So he takes it all in his stride. And I, I felt that actually that that was spot on. Yeah. I mean, nobody should know talk better than Phil. So mm. it should be spot on. But mm. I, I just thought that was so good, which is why I read out such a long quote. But I, I just thought that that was perfect. That's so eloquent, wasn't it? That was like in my head, I was sitting listening and all the different scenes of... Um, talk when he's you know when he's wearing his skull cap when he's pretending to be something else or when he's dealing with villagers or he's announcing the bans for Robert and Marion's wedding all those different scenes were coming into my head and I could hear Phil talking about him and it felt it felt so genuine that was lovely thanks for reading that I really enjoyed that yeah that's, that's yeah I just, I just thought it was so it was just it was just what what we needed really <laughs> Yeah. You know, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Just put a full stop on it. You know, <laughs> yeah. explain it. And he's explained it better than we could. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I would... mean, we, will, we will 
need to get Phil on as a guest, I think, at some point. But oh, um, I think Seats interviewed him, didn't he, on the other Robin Show, on the episode Robin Show um, podcast? Yes, yeah. he did. Yeah. 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 The Roscast, as I think Dan's referred to it. Um, and it, that was really good listening as well, actually. It's always nice to hear what the cast have to say. You feel like Phil was so fond of talk. You know, some actors really love their characters, but perhaps can't you know, describe it in such a way, but that, he was so in tune with him. That was really, really good. Yeah, I think as well, though, they've spent so long talking about these characters now Mm. that it's kind of, I think they've got to that point where they've realised how important these characters are to people, and they've totally embraced it. There's an element as well, though, isn't there, that they had to prepare this this kind of background and and information when they were actually preparing for the roles as yeah, well. They, they generally. have to know their characters. Yeah. And I guess, um, I guess Phil did talk about this kind of thing with Richard Carpenter. Fairly, I think you, uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think depth, you mentioned I that as well. Yeah, I would think... You can did. tell, can't you, this is a series where the writer is really close to the production team and they've continued to develop and build the characters as the series has matured, which we got, you know, Kit was very much around for those first two series, wasn't he? Um, and that's when you see that um, there's interesting changes with him in series three. We see it, Tuck in particular, where we're um, talking about going back to his early days in um, Thornton Abbey. But that's all built on the how Tuck's become established in the first two seasons already. But you can really see the strength of the writing and how it supported the actor to develop the character, which is something really special. Yeah. And yeah, it's um, it's been so long and it's clearly something that he keeps being asked. <laughs> so it, it's nice to have a definitive answer to it. I mean, when when I came across the interview, I mean, it was almost like uh, somebody had told him we were making this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Two years later. (laughs) Here's what Phil thinks. (laughs) Shall we talk a little bit about the real baddies in Robin or Sherwood? The baddie baddies, the Satanists. Mm-hmm. like Belem and stuff mm-hmm. which are kind of again he's not that if we're talking specifically about Belem he's not that different from the sheriff except that he can use magic mm. he's not less moral or more moral or anything he's just more magical does this come out of out of the 70s folk horror thing or is it based on the satanic panic that went on around that time or well, it, it's got roots in real life, hasn't it? Belem, the real Robert Belem, who went on, I think, First Crusade in the 1080s. Didn't he come back? And he was very a very cruel man and a very cruel yeah, lord. Apparently. And there was legends and rumours that he'd been influenced by... I mean, I guess what they were saying, that he'd come across the Muslim faith and, it's, and, and the Christian faith back home kind of bad-mouthed it all. Um, and talks of it as black magic and all that kind of thing. But there was some, I don't know much about him particularly, but he was a you know, notorious character for practising really bad um, bad religion, really, in the eyes of, of people at that, contemporaries at that time. 
So I wonder if the Belém character kip based on the historical one and and those stories around him perhaps. Yeah, and just... I think the uh, historical Belém was um a complete psychopath from from what I remember. I seem to remember something about he tied his pregnant wife under a horse and then like whipped the horse with yeah. galloped and killed killed his wife um she was under its stomach. Uh, I think his mother was, he, was his mother also a bit of a psychopath? There, there, there was there was more to it going on than I than I think just the religion. But I think Kipps picked up on sort of the cruelty angle that while it wasn't explicit in um, Robin and Sherwood, I think it's implied. Yeah, there's some legend around him as a Norman knight who discovers he is the son of Satan. So. There we go. Yeah, because I think as um, I'm not very good on on. Um, he was no Bible demon type things, but I think Azale is mentioned in the Bible. I think so. Yeah, he's it's it's sort of you know the the, the sort of he's coming from sort of the the Bible side. I mean, presumably the idea is that he's picked this demon up while in the Holy Land, the same way that he's picked Nazir and um, little John. <laughs> well, he's got mm. little John on the, on the way back, hasn't he? But yeah. yeah. Certainly Nazir. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we, we actually have a representative of Islam in Robin of Sherwood, but it's not something that's in any way of at least very little explored, which mm. I think would not fly nowadays. Nowadays, you'd have whole episodes about it and stuff. For the 80s, at least they had him in there, even though he is played by a white guy from Doncaster. Mm. <laughs> it wouldn't not, have... Yeah, not great. Not touch, on it. touch on his religion, don't they? Because um, he's bit. like, he's not pork, is he? Mm. Yeah. Um, is one obvious thing. And um, it's very specific about, you know, the cult of the assassin that he's a member of um, in The yeah. Greatest Enemy. Yeah, yeah. So it's a very specific aspect of his religion. And, and they refer to him like your lot, don't they? And that kind of thing. It's passing references rather yeah. than any exploration. Well. But like you say, in the context of the 80s, that's massive. And when you, in what's even more influential is the fact that every Robin Hood iteration since has had a Middle Eastern character in it. And we all, as we all know, that's Kip's iteration and his contribution yeah. to the canon. Although a lots of um, of the more recent productions were... I mean, I, I think... Went back decades and centuries, but... Um, so so it, it could have had the, the biggest contribution, even though it was it was explored so yeah. in such a light-touch way. And it was almost explored by accident, wasn't it? Because Nazir wasn't supposed to be... He was uh, recurring character. He was Edmund the Archer to begin with. Yeah. Mm. So for some reason, on the spot, they said you're Nazir the Saracen, which I yeah. believe Kip um, had a fit about to begin with. <laughs> he was like, really? what? Yeah, he said, well, you can't have a Saracen in Sherwood. Yeah. But then he said, okay, we'll do this. We'll get it. And he did. He got it to work and... By season two, he had a bit more to do, and by series three, he had a lot more to do. So mm. it built up. Uh, I, I think as well, um, Robin of Sherwood is the first version of Robin Hood that is 
acknowledging the the sort of moral ambiguity i i guess for want of a better word of the crusades mm. um because yeah. because normally you're up to that point of everything i can think of the crusades are, are all like you know um we're the christians we're going to go and bash these heathens and it's all very much on the side of the europeans going over there mm-hmm. um but by bringing nazir in who is effectively one of the heroes um he's not a bad guy and the crusaders who are in the show are not presented in a good light um in various stories that mm-hmm. it's there's actually quite an interesting dynamic there that you don't really usually see um and again the crusaders are the christians and nazir is representing the muslims as far as that they really yeah. go in the series you've got the mm-hmm. odd ones popping up but you don't really learn much about them you see it in uh, Nazir in Seven Poor Nights and how he reacts to the Templars mm, uh, yeah. he obviously he doesn't say anything but, <laughs> but you um, you get it in the action scenes when he's going to kill uh, De Villeray and Robin stops him so it is suggested rather than explicitly stated no, I was going to say, um, I think Robin and Marion is kind of has the Crusades in it in kind of a negative light, but it doesn't have the Muslim character in it, as I remember. Mm. But it's kind of, I think Robin and Sherwood just kind of built out a little bit out of that. There's, there's a really good scene I really enjoy in The Inheritance. Is it Raven? The oh, yeah. gangster guy yeah. who gives that really, really good speech, completely disparaging the Crusades because Mortimer is saying, you know, oh, like kind of heroes and want to be the hero of the hour. And he absolutely disses him, doesn't he? And he says, you've got no idea the heat and the three years and the heat and the dust and everybody dying around you. And that's one of the only, only programmes I've ever seen where the Crusades is, you know, somebody comes home and tells the truth and and he's a bit pretty despicable character but you can't argue with the facts that he's talking about and you don't often see that like, even in war dramas and stuff nobody talks about it do they it's all because you're not heroic but um but kip did that so often didn't he like you know shining a light on what think things were really like and yeah that's that's another classic example if you go to war it's actually it's not like a john wayne film it's actually pretty <laughs> yeah. not a lot of fun you know mm-hmm. but it was that yeah, kind of... he, he the point either does he? he just sort of drops it in so mm. if you're somebody who is just watching a program on saturday tea time that line may well have just gone over your head you you know you're eating your crisps you didn't really hear it <laughs> But it, but it's there, and and as little obsessives with our Blu-rays um, on repeat, you know we we've picked up on we've picked up on this, and we're getting the final point. Yeah. It's so well delivered. It's actually that's not Kip, is it? That's Horowitz. It's, uh, Anthony Horowitz. It's Horowitz, but again, he, Horowitz is always building on what Kip did before. Yeah. Um, and it's really well delivered that line. I think it's really passionate, and it makes you it makes that character a bit more three D. Because he's very 2D, he's very foul, isn't he? He's really hideous. And then you hear that and you kind of go, oh, kind of understand where you, why you like what you're like because you've been through. I mean, we don't know who wrote the individual line because obviously Kip and Annie 
were were script editors True. on yeah. season three. It feels so, like I mean, I'm not taking anything away from Anthony Horowitz. He probably mm. did write it, but possibly didn't. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who knows? Or maybe it was ad-libbed on the set. You just don't know. Mm. But it yeah. is quite funny to uh, contrast what Raven says against what Robin says in King's Fool, where he's just, oh, yeah, we'll go on crusade, and when we win... <laughs> we'll come back and we'll be wardens in Sherwood. And it's like this romantic propaganda-filled almost idea of what mm. war And yet is. that's the kind of thing that was yeah. happening in the Robin Hood films yeah. before actually really cleverly done in Robin of Sherwood because that's almost like the finale that you'd have at the end of um, the Robin Hood films. You know, good King Richard turns up, pardons everybody, let's have a big wedding and a party. You even see it at the end of Prince of Thieves, which is after um, Robin of Sherwood. Yeah, that, the that's the whole that. thing. But but um, Robin of Sherwood subverts it and turns it on its head a bit. And it's why Scarlet doesn't join them, isn't it? Because he knows Yeah, he knows, he, what, he knows what the reality is really like. like. Do it, because Holy knows. Wars, yeah. He knows and he doesn't trust them and he knows that what war is because mm-hmm. he's been there as we find out later. <laughs> yeah, it really does uh, give a subversion and a grown-up view of the whole thing mm-hmm. in a way that younger people can digest. Yeah. Which is, I think, Kip was really a master. He knew exactly what to push and when to stop and when was too much and when to pull it back and that was just what made his writing so special. Later versions, they tend to labour a point. Another thing that Robin and Sherwood did was they actually had a whole episode about Jews, which I have never seen in Robin Hood before. And I don't know You've if You've got I've it been... in the Ivanhoe, haven't you? It's in Ivanhoe. Yeah, I, yeah, I've not seen that one, though. But, I mean, in terms of the films that I've seen before Ross and after Ross, I've never seen anything specifically about the the treatment of Jews other than in Robin of Sherwood. No. Um, so that is a really positive, I think, a real truthful and in some ways harsh depiction of what yeah. it was like to be a Jew in medieval England, mm-hmm. as I I believe that episode was driven by Esther, who yeah. is herself Jewish. Yeah, she, um, yeah, she wanted Kip to write a Jewish story, and he mm-hmm. did. And it's it's one of the best ones I think that they ever did. Yeah, it, it's it's fantastically handled. The Jewish characters in it are so you respect them enormously. They're really, you know clear and eloquent about their position and you know the and the cruelty that their people experience they don't shy away from and again this is a tea time family show and it's incredibly brutal what happens and they ref the show you know the pro storyline references what's happened in other cities in london and in york yeah and this is the purging of the jews in nottingham which for a, a, you know, a tea time show you wouldn't get that on prime time tv now and you know you you hear about the the awful um racist abuse that people get on twitter um Mm. and you know jewish celebrities or personalities are going through 
continuing to go through an awful time and get such horrendous abuse the fact that 30 years ago tv program focused on a positive light on a jewish community i think is fantastic really really good and I, I wish it was an episode that got talked about more in that way was kind of celebrated a bit more and, and discussed a bit more because i think it really looks at some very very difficult issues in right head on really and pulls it off mm. it works on so many levels Mm-hmm. And yeah, as you said, I think uh, Joshua de Talmont is a fantastic character. And you've got to remember that the reason that the sheriff has to purge in Nottingham is because he doesn't want to pay his debts. Yeah, exactly. because, uh, because the, the Jews, the only job that they were allowed to do was money lending, um, mm-hmm. I, I believe. Yeah. And um Therefore, there was a, they, they became successful at it because as generations go on, you learn how to do it. Yeah. And, you know, people started getting resentful that these effectively heathens, as far as they're, they're looking at it, um, have got so much money and are so powerful um, within the country. And that's, that's what was behind a lot of the problems that the, the Jews were experiencing um in the country despite it being no fault of their own um because they couldn't do any other jobs um you know and just because they do the one job they're they're allowed to do well you know it it stirred up um uh, a lot of resentment actually which continues to this day i I have actually experienced anti-semitism myself despite not being jewish when I worked in a bank, I had an old man once hiss at me, Jew girl, um, because, really? yes, because I was basically not doing what he wanted me to do. Um, and yeah, and this was in the early 90s. Um, and I genuinely had no idea that it still existed up to that point when I experienced it myself, what which was just bizarre I was more surprised than offended because obviously it didn't apply to me but it it was just it was just bizarre I didn't know how to react but but yeah and it it startled me that it still it was still happening because I only understood it in a historical context I've got to be honest at that point it's still it's still all pervasive it's just people yeah it doesn't happen and for our show to tackle it head on like that is something it was a brave thing to do and I, I applaud them for doing that and I think like Gary said they did it excellently well um, and really really carried it off and it's, it's a good way to portray it on television I think on a lighter note with guarding it and I, I just felt this point was so important that I've got to say it <laughs> um, the episode The Children of Israel mm. is the only time when that I can think of anyway in Robin of Sherwood where we actually see God the Abrahamic God of Christianity and Judaism actually showing some power when uh, Joshua de Tolman's book turns on the sheriff for want of a better word uh, it's usually the pagan or satanic elements that that seem to have the power and and the the god it seems to do nothing really just just isn't involved and that's the one time when there is some reaction which i found quite interesting 
Right, okay, so we're going to talk a little bit now about Robin's pagan aspects in the show, which were quite a new thing to introduce at the time. Richard Carpenter, the writer, decided to make Robin the son of Han the Hunter, like a horned god of the forest. There was actually, in the original version, actually a little more paganism than we saw on screen. There were a couple of scenes that were cut where they had an actual altar that they'd go to, as I understand it. I don't know why those scenes were cut, maybe just for time, or maybe they just didn't need them or whatever. But those are in the original script, some of which are on the uh, Blu-rays, so you can look them up if you're interested, if they're those episodes. I can't fully remember, but they are in there. Um, but this was kind of leading a neo-pagan revival in a lot of ways, certainly on television. So how did this, uh, how did this come about? How did it play out? So what is uh, neo-paganism? How does it fit into Robin Sherwood or Robin or Sherwood fit into it? Um, I don't know a huge amount about it. I wouldn't profess to be an expert, but... From what I understand, there were several writers who were trying to construct a religion from what little they did know about pre-Christian religions in Britain. And it tends to get called neo-paganism because there, there is a distinction between what was actually going on historically with paganism and and what was happening then and that's why it is differentiated because they're, they're, they are different things. So basically because very little is uh, known about it they had the opportunity to reinvent it to be more fitting for the times. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah I think I think so. I mean uh, Robin Sherwood uh, specifically, I know we talked about this um, before in the Hearn podcast. You know, Hearn himself is 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 attached to Windsor Great Park and was a I can't think what can't think what the word is like a ranger. Yeah, like uh, a gamekeeper. No, gamekeeper, oh, warden. Or yeah, yeah, there, and I think he was cuckolded by his wife and and hung himself. Um, from a tree in in Great Windsor Great Park, and the cook holding um, uh, or the adultery, but uh, at that point, um, that it was signified by wearing um, stag's horns so on it, your head. Was it a way of kind of looking like a fool or something? I'm not. I don't. I'm not even sure that anybody knows the origins to be honest but the there were some kind of links going back to Canunos who was the horned god from Celtic mythology who and whose name does survive in various parts of the country mm. um the Kernabas giant is one where the name survived um there's Charnwood which is basically my local wooded area that that's coming from the same root root name as well uh Canunos Hearns obviously Hearn Kern Canunos you know it's 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 those kinds of things so that there's some kind of linkage um there but but the Hearn that's 
that's in uh, that's the Windsor Great Park uh, and is mentioned in Shakespeare of all places doesn't really have any sort of godlike attributes. It, it, it's more sort of a ghost, a legend, you know. So that's that's new for for her for Kit that he's one that he's placed her in Sherwood, where he's frankly got no business being. But mm. <laughs> um, tourist. Yeah, that he's that he's also made him um, a, a god, and he's drawing on sort of the folklore mythology of a horned god, um, in, uh, that's in various places across the country. Um, but again, it, it, it's it's the fact that he's doing that is all from a background of him of Kip reading. The, the things about the neo, neo paganism and them them creating the new things and I, and I and I suppose in a way trying to give Britain back its folklore and mythology that it's lost uh, and that in a sense goes you, you know you could draw a line from that back to Tolkien who was doing uh, a similar thing where he's creating a mythology of the country um, although he's calling it Middle Earth there's quite clear links in, in Britain um so there, there, there's all sort of those kind of elements that are all coming to to a head really with what kit produced yeah i imagine the idea of the horned of the man wearing the horns is something that goes back right to the stone age yeah you've got um uh, uh star car i think that's that's right isn't it steph star star car where they found the masks um oh, i don't know the, about that do you know, I'm sure it's Star Car. Could be slightly wrong. Uh, I think it's up towards the Orkneys. Uh, they found gold um, with with horns that have been made into masks. Oh, uh, well, they wow. think they're masks. They were either because uh, the, the holes have been drilled in for they think for wearing, possibly for putting on the wall. But they think mm. they think they were wearing them. You know, so it it goes back to to Neolithic times really that this kind of idea yeah and you've you've got some traditions like the horn dance in abbots bromley in south staffordshire yeah. where it's it's a bit tiny bit like a morris dancing routine kind of the modern the more modern day version of it but it's men men only dancing with horns mm-hmm. and it's all connected to fertility rights isn't it the, the stag is the premium beast of the chase and the hunt and it it all goes back to you know the most powerful beast i suppose um and all that kind of stuff there was a really weird and funny idea from fans at one point it was to do with michael pride he had a tendency apparently to go to the costume department and find rags and tie it around his legs now he didn't realize this but apparently if you tied a certain rag around a certain leg it symbolised you were the leader of a coven or something. I have no idea if this is accurate. <laughs> yeah, so people who were into that kind of thing were kind of pointing and saying, look, look, it's a secret. <gasps> like he was sending a sign, like a mason or something. Yeah, but well, he, Whereas yeah. Michael was doing it because his legs were skinny. Yeah. And he was yeah. trying, He's trying to, to bulk up. Yeah. And eventually... <laughs> Eventually, one of the directors said something like, Michael, take those things off. You look like a bloody Morris dancer. Uh, that's and just that mean. Was, um, <laughs> so he had just one on each leg and that was it after that. <laughs> but 
<laughs> yeah, but what the point is that you have to be careful not to read things into things that weren't originally there, and it is easy to do. Mm-hmm. But that, that was just a funny little um, thing that happened on the set, as I, as I remember someone telling me this. So one of the strange things that happened after Robin of Sherwood, we had Prince of Thieves came out, and this had kind of magic in it. Not so much paganism, it kept the elements of the people in power being um, religious and corrupt, but it had a bit of magic in it, and the Patrick Berging version came out and with no magic in it. And it seemed like the, um, the magical and pagan elements of Robin Hood's seem to drop out of every subsequent version. Am I right about this? Because I did not see every episode of the BBC one. <laughs> um, there, was, there was definitely magical elements in that mad American Robin Hood series, the Error of Chivalry one. Oh, the, I, I believe yeah, there may even have been a dragon in that at one point. Yeah, this was the one where Robin faked his own death at the Abbey. There were definitely several Robins in it. When they had two Robins, two Marions, I think they basically Yeah, there was one. There was one that was a ripoff of the Swords of Wayland. One episode where the abbess wanted Robin's body because she knew Taurus would want to come and look at it or something. It was some kind of mad, bizarre scheme that you could imagine someone like Richard Branson coming up with nowadays. If he could get well, away, wasn't Robert Addy in an episode? Yeah, he went and did um, an episode. Yeah, because he, he I, Devil's I, I Pride or having something. A, having a conversation with him or hearing him say that he did it for the money and he didn't think it would ever get shown over here, so nobody would know how bad it was. <laughs> Boy, did he learn a lesson there. I don't think there was much, if there was any magic in the BBC version, there wasn't very much. I think it. I've only skimmed through it. Under, I really, it was but... an un- there was an undercurrent, I think, in a couple of episodes. Yeah, I've only know about it because I really like Joe Armstrong, um, who's a great actor, and they wasted him in yes, that as Alan Dale. And I always think he'd have been a brilliant Alan Dale in our band if the times were Wasn't right. Wasn't that the last, the last episode? Because um, I, I, I could be wrong. I only ever watched it once when it aired, so my memory mm. may well be faulty on this. If so, I apologise. I think... I think Marion had died before the last episode. That's and... it. I think that's the end of the second. Did it run to three series like our yeah. did? I think it. She dies and, in the second series. And didn't yeah, Robin at die at the end of the third series? And he could see off. like yeah. a ghosty Marion walking mm. through the trees or something. So I mean, it's not really the same thing, but it was a little bit supernaturally. I think there's a healer in one of them because I'll I'll admit to. Um, encountering BBC Robin Hood through fan videos um and I was a big shipper of um Alan and Kate I thought they were brilliant together really really and they wasted that again anyway nobody cares um but she gets stabbed and I think and there's a bit of a love triangle with um Alan and Much who both Alan's pretending he doesn't like her and Much is completely in love with her and some what some healer guy who's Oh, God, it's some surgeon that, and he heals her. But I think it's, I can't remember if that's magical. He's just a brilliant in the forest with absolutely no medical supplies whatsoever, manages to cure her from a, a deep stab wound that she's made her fall unconscious. I think that might be, there's some other powers. And Gisman's sister's in it, and she's a bit strange. 
but I get a bit confused because I've watched a few episodes of Merlin and the two programmes to me are almost the same show. Um, yeah, I, I feel the same, the same and I get the writing is the same. Yeah. And if you ever watch that Atlantis rubbish as well, that's another out the same stable, I think. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I but, wanted um, them all three to be good and all three of them weren't. Merlin was probably the best out of the three, but none of them are very good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think there's only a tiny bit in that, if there is some. And there isn't any in Russell Crowe, is there? No, not that I remember. There. Yeah. And Nothing. as for all the I'm, Guy Ritchie enough, ones, I don't think so. <laughs> well, the kind, the kind of is, but it's more... Um, it's more sort of like Middle Earth, really, than um, yeah, than anything, anything real. With... More fantasy, yeah. Yeah, the, I mean, I, I think it's is that the one where they I get mixed up with that and the King Arthur one that was equally bad. Mm -hmm. Where there's elephants, like giant elephant mammoth things riding over castle, castle, like rock faces, and the they're falling down and elephants are falling down and either rob I think is this a bad dream me. karen or have you seen that no, no. <laughs> i think that's the king arthur one is that the king arthur i yeah. i basically fell asleep during both of them i have to be honest so i can't remember but they were both appalling yeah. <laughs> i tend to remember? do that films are really bad i pass out <laughs> the taron egerton one I fell asleep during that it's, twice. I'm, I'm very proud. Yeah. <laughs> it's the one with, um, who is it? Is it Denzel Washington as Little John or something? No. Who is oh, it? Uh, it's a generation below Denzel Washington, and I can't, I can't remember who it is now. Anyway. I want um, to say Ray somebody, but that could well be wrong. Yeah, I, it'll come back to me, I'm sure. But... Um, it's kind of, it's more fantasy and magic in terms of what they actually do rather than anything like Hearn or anything yeah, based on the fate. Yeah, it's in a fantasy universe, I guess. Yeah, it must um, be. Like, like, yeah, Robin's, um, he's more like the Green Arrow rather than Robin Hood. He's mm -hmm. got, he's got the sort of the, when he's, you know, he's doing about 15 arrows in a, second or they have crossbow kind. machine guns yeah it's it's that kind it's it's yeah rather than having a, a supernatural element for what of a better word it's just in a fantasy universe yeah so it, it's um, a different kind of uh magic just a ton less yeah. almost in some ways less believable magic yeah <laughs> in a strange way yeah, I mean, we we you know we talked about the fact that the the fact that the the Marys and it appears most of the villagers are pagan is completely historically inaccurate. Mm -hmm. um, and we we already know that Robin of Sherwood is, is re it's a fantasy series really, um, but it's a it's a fantasy series with both feet firmly planted in historical reality. Um, so it's got a firm footing before it jumps off, introducing supernatural elements or or whatever. Um, whereas these the other shows seem to to not understand that Robin operates in a in a historical framework with 
kings that really existed so you whichever king you choose you're putting yourself in a in a historical time uh, and they're immediately putting themselves in this fantasy realm where you know everything's not right (laughs) (laughs) you know you might as well have said it's you know robin hood visits middle earth you know it's just none of it's none of it's quite right yeah, it just it just it's hard to connect to. Because even though Robin or Sherwood is a fantasy version of history, it's kind of in, in a lot of ways it kind of looks right, even mm. though it's not really right. It, it kind of just sits on that borderland between fantasy and history in just the right place, I think. Yeah, and I think I think that if the characters were real at that time they would have superstitions and I think they would believe to some extent that magic was real. You know, whether they're, they're dressing it up as, I, I don't know, a, a statue of the Virgin Mary's crying blood or, or whatever. I mean, they're, they're, all, they're all elements of, of the supernatural, of magic, thing, things above and beyond the ordinary. So I, I, I think the characters, if the characters believe that it's real then you as the audience Mm -hmm. believe that it's real you know it it, which I don't think you're really seeing in these news series because they're not not... they haven't got time have they these new things because most of them are big budget movies aren't they and they they, Mm. they're aiming for box office smashes and they don't think that lingering on faith or religion is necessarily the type of films they are they're they're action films mostly, aren't mm. they? And they don't think necessarily that's going to appeal to that audience, say. Whereas in Robin and Sherwood, we linger for the tiniest moments on little things like them all sharing the bowl around the campfire and saying, blessed mm-hmm. be. And then Lord of the Trees really goes into, you know, we've had a series and a half and then we get into the whole ceremony around the blessing and the three days of no bloodshed and all the villagers are there and all the outlaws join in even as he is there because it's part of their faith and they they linger on it don't they whereas i think in these big budget movies that it's it's going to get cut isn't it it's going to it's never going to get past the treatment stage that kind of thing yeah yeah i suppose it's it's fairer to compare the series isn't it in that sense rather than um a series to the films because the other robin hood series have had and uh, more of an opportunity to, to explore these things, mm-hmm. which you know, I mean, we've said that we don't think they've really taken it, but they had, the they chance, had that opportunity least, yeah. more. Apparently, one of the reasons I remember reading an interview with the producers of the BBC Robin Hood, and one of the reasons they said that they uh, weren't using the magical elements from Robin of Sherwood was that they thought that audiences wouldn't accept it anymore, which is kind of a weird thing when you've just done Merlin. I'd I'd also just say Game of Thrones. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, if if it's done well, then your audience goes along with it. Yeah, they just... Their excuse was they won't accept that anymore. That's too I mean, 1980s. <laughs> whether they really, well, yeah, they're trying to move, they're a 
when was Robin Hood early 2000 BBC Robin Hood yeah. I mean I can, I can understand yeah. why they wanted to do something different rather than yeah uh, recreating Robin as Sherwood or, or I mean paying too much homage to to a previous series as well you're gonna get you're gonna inevitably run into like copyright problems yeah, I guess also, or just, be just do it badly just do your yeah. own thing mm-hmm. yeah and, yeah. Ross, and like we've said, Ross was the first series that brought magic into Robin Hood. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's really kind of inevitable that future series are going to ignore that as a blip and, and go back to others. Mm-hmm. You know, everything that went before. It's the unique element of that 1980s series that's special to it. And mm. everything that's gone beyond it hasn't really got a USP quite like that, really. No. Um, and that's what makes our Robin show would just stand out, really, from all the others, I think. It's why we're still talking about it 30-odd years later, because it had so many USPs that, you know, other series would give their eye. I just have one of, really. I mean, I don't know what... I guess the Robin Hood, the BBC Robin Hood, had a real... They really went even more for the youth market. It was Robin in hoodies, wasn't it? And the humor, yeah. and it was a bit even more tea time family friend. They went for the real light, Robin Hood light, didn't they? Yeah. Um, I would say. Um, and there hasn't been a series since, apart from Maid Marion, which was actually before. Maid Marion was earlier, yeah. Yeah, but it I don't think, I wonder, it must be time for another one but then you know netflix are they going to do a robin hood series there's so many um films out there but will anyone decide to go for another tv series and will they is it time to bring the magic back they'd want to have a new angle wouldn't they they wouldn't yeah they it wouldn't would want to be a um, marion of sherwood yeah, I was just going to say that, female. Yeah. I mean, I watched something terrible the other day. It was Keira Knightley, where as Robin, she's, oh, it's some oh, weird thing. Princess of Thieves. That's it. Oh, that was really rubbish. I, I, I did watch it through, though. Um, she pouted all the way through, bless her. And she's good at that, to be fair. Very, yeah. very Oscar-winning pouting. Oh. But that's got no magic in it, I don't think. No. <laughs> It's one of those lockdown things you accidentally find yourself watching because you've run out of other stuff to watch on Netflix. No, I mean, yeah, yeah, I think Netflix is female hero. Yeah, they've just done that with uh, He Man, bizarrely Um, enough, which kind of is weird to have a He Man show that he's barely in. Write something new, please. There are a million stories out there. And and no one's written something new for the first time, but it's your take on it. That's what's different. The Robin Hood legend's been written so many times, but you have to add. You have you to create. Add something. You can't yeah. just exhaust what's out there and just tweak and be funny about it. You've got to you've got to contribute, is what I would say. And yeah. I would did that with the legends and the magic and the mysticism and drawing on folklore and I think anyone I mean you could do it again now like that because we've got a Game of Thrones thirsty TV audience out of out there who would totally would accept it and I don't think producers and networks would be as nervous um as they were thousands of going near that subject matter so you could really really do it but I I don't know if anyone 
for me, they just wouldn't do as good a job as Robin showed and Kit because it was the carpenter magic throughout it. A moment in time. The easiest thing is to make Robin a superhero, isn't it? But I think one of the attractive things about Robin is that he, he isn't a superhero. I mean, you know, Robin of Sherwood, sure, he's got um, a sword that's got dubious magic powers. Um, he's got a silver arrow, which may or may not be useful. <laughs> and um, he's quite good with uh, a bow and arrow. But he's he, he himself has got no, no magic powers. Sure, he's got a magic advisor, but he's not in himself a superhero. And I think that's one of the attractive things about it. And we see him, both Robins, try and, you know, have crisis of faith, don't they, with her. Yeah. Both both of them are like, why am I doing this? What is the purpose? What's my purpose? What is the, the point of all this? They're not totally sold on it, but then their kind of faith re-establishes re itself and they commit to it and recommit to whatever the mission is they're on, which isn't overtly, again they don't hammer that home repeatedly. It's not like something every week they all get around the fire and say, right, remember what we're here for, everybody. You know, saving the weak and the, the oppressed and all that kind of stuff. It, it, it's it's an undercurrent, isn't it, rather than the main... I imagine if they made it now, it'd be about um, saving the environment and everything. You know, that would be the theme of it, is this mm. connection to the earth read a really good like horror story that was written about the 1900s I think 1920s something like that uh, I can't remember what it was called it was something like Robin's Dell or something where they had like a sort of a Robin spirit haunting this bit of wood and uh, having sexual relations with a young lady as well. It was it was really quite good. Oh, uh, not very Netflix. Expected for the time period. No, it was just it was just a short story. So yeah, very very interesting different take there. I thought. Yeah. Well, I think at some point we should do a podcast of the where Robin or Sherwood might have gone with these themes. <laughs> but anyway, I guess we better wrap this one up. So. Yep, thanks for Steph and Karen for coming. And it's been a great discussion as always. So we'll, uh, you will talk to you later. Bye.